This podcast is a collaboration between Aftonbladet Kultur and the Institute for Future Studies, an interdisciplinary research institute that focuses on the possibilities and threats humanity has to handle, now and in the future. Knowledge and critical reflection make for better decisions. Follow our research at iffs.se. Welcome to The New World, a podcast by me, Karin Pettersson at Aftonbladet and... Me, Georg Dietz, uh, editor-in-chief of The New Institute. And when we were thinking back to this year... Crazy, and this crazy, crazy, crazy year. year. And uh, wondering whom we wanted to talk to about this year, we came up... With our dear friend... With... Adam Toos. Adam Toos. Yeah. Who better to Who talk better? about? Who is Adam Tuss? Who is Adam Tuss? He's such a he's a polymath. I think that's the word that you use. Um, overused, maybe, but uh, he truly is. He's a historian for European history, but writes a lot about political economy, especially in the term in the context of austerity, and wrote this massive study of um, the post financial crisis economy crash. It's a fantastic book. Everybody should read it. Who's interested in economics and politics or political economy? Adam, good to have you. Yeah, to be here. It's uh, been a long time since we wanted to have you on the podcast, and I think the year 2020 has been crazy, uh, mad, and tiring enough to finish it with a conversation about the future, <laughs> or starting with the <laughs> with future. With me, about the future. With you, yeah. <laughs> now, we've been in the future mode, here, mood here a bit, um, jumping ahead, and we've been reading Kim... Uh, Stanley Robinson's book, uh, Minister for the Future, which is, um, if you haven't heard about it or read it, it's highly recommendable. And it puts you in this kind of flight mode in a different way. So if you, you want to escape the present in some way and jump ahead. So my question for you, and you can refuse that as a historian, of course, is thinking back from the year 2030, what did we do right? In this moment of corona, slash climate, slash injustice, slash general decay, slash everything? Well, the single most important thing that we did was that we, you know, more or less efficiently and effectively and with some huffing and puffing shut down. I don't even like the phrase lockdown because it implies too much top-down coercion and it seems to me to buy into a rather unpleasant um, discourse about that the overwhelming, you know, extraordinary phenomenon of this year is that certainly in the first phase, the overwhelming majority of humanity made the choice to totally interrupt an ordinary course of their lives so as to respond to this medical emergency. Now, we will argue forever about the specific choices that were made, but that's a remarkable thing to have happened. It's unique um, in that form. And broadly speaking, it was the right thing to do. So, are you? Um, 
Are you surprised by that? Yes, extremely. Um, I mean, I started the year writing a book about climate change. Mm. And, you know, what we thought we knew about the political economy of climate change was that nothing would ever happen ever because why one word capitalism. Um, and that turns out to be, well, just not to work very well as an explanation, as a broad grid for understanding this year. And various brave Marxists have tried to rescue themselves from this by talking about you know, the autonomy of the state and so on. Um, but I think that falls a little bit short. Um, this isn't to say that, you know, in some giant humanitarian gesture, we've already decided, we've suddenly decided to prioritize life of everything else. That's absurd equally. Mm. So there's something profoundly complex and conflictual going on where it does appear that there are some kind of safety catches which get operated in weird ways. Um, so I find it very, I continue to find it extremely puzzling. But broadly speaking, I affirm it. Yes, if you ask one thing we did right this year is that is that the shutdowns took place. And really, you know, encompassingly, India, South Africa, Nigeria, everywhere, more or less. Um, it's truly remarkable. So I was reading uh, Andreas Malm's uh, book on uh, um, Corona and, yeah. and capitalism. And, That's what and I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. But, but he's also arguing, if I don't remember it incorrectly, that the reason behind the world acting so uh, aggressively or decisively is also that this crisis hit where it hurts, where the money is. Uh, the glo- Yeah, I find that the weakest part of his oh, argument. Yeah? So oh, I spared him the reproduction of that. <laughs> I just think that's facile. Okay. Um, but, but I think he really gets to the point where he says, actually, we somehow have to reckon with the fact that this is an expression of state autonomy. Mm. I mean, those kind of like reductive arguments. It's silly because fundamentally... You know, the, the balance of interest is so massively the other way. You know, the idea also that billionaires couldn't ultimately protect themselves whilst allowing the rest to go is also just silly, right? So I just don't find any of that at all convincing. But, what but, I find impressive is that somebody like him actually tried to make an effort to grapple with this problem. And I don't find his answers very compelling. Um, but, but, you know, kudos to, to him to actually go out on the limb so quickly. But if we're optimistic about having solved the corona um, problem, then maybe we can also, in the vein of Malam, think about how to tackle the climate qu- question in the next 10 years, what that would imply, what that would need, and in the vein of measures taken by governments. Oh, but don't misunderstand me. I mean, don't read what I just said as saying I'm optimistic about how we, ta- you know, we tackled it. We didn't. Like, this is, I take this to be like a total crisis here, um, which revealed our complete incapacity to compute intelligently any of these choices we don't have a calculus we don't have a language that allows us to communicate about this you saw that even with you know angela merkel's showdown with the afd and the bundestag today and we actually this is a this is a symptom of crisis i mean this year has been a a crisis but that crisis is born out of conflicting impulses and some of those impulses are not entirely you know worthy of condemnation some of those impulses appear to be sort of broadly speaking well, they're totally hypocritical in many ways and they're cynical in others, but they're nevertheless, you know, there is a there are certain safety catch mechanisms that kick in. Um, and the strategies, on the other hand, of pure cynicism, like just didn't work out. The, the guys who were posturing as the really hard nosed, you know, they just let it blow through its flu. All of a sudden, when you get the Imperial College people saying, well, that'll be half a million dead in the UK or two million in the US, it crumbles, right? They don't even have, as it were, the guts. Their realism turns out to be completely unrealistic. Mm. 
And, and, and Trump didn't even have the nerve to say when he was shown the photos of Queens that this is Queens. It's totally unrepresentative of the rest of the United States. And none of those people vote for me anyway. So why should I give a damn? Like if he Ooh, was actually Trump. a cri- critic, Ooh. he would have done that. I thought we got a Trump-free podcast, but um, uh, <laughs> no. we voted him out, so that's... Uh, okay. well, oh, say you order. <laughs> well, that's another thing people did right this year. <laughs> so it's a happy, Looking a back from back 2030, at... <laughs> they might conclude that one group of people did something right. But Adam, I'm <laughs> just curious. About. No, just let's stay with this a bit, because I'm... So you're surprised by the this ability to act some, somehow, collectively, or... Yeah. I don't know, in a coordinated fashion, maybe, is the better... Semi-coordinated, yeah. temporary as it was. But what is... So is it... what what? How do you explain it, then? Is it to protect lives? Is it solidarity? What is the... How would you... I think, I, do, is, I don't think I don't think no. Malm's entirely wrong that it has got something to do with rich country life expectation and assumptions, right? Mm. Um, but those are entrenched in apparatuses which are really quite complicated and institutional. So I think broadly speaking, what happens is we, you know, even if the epidemiologists don't believe in the epidemiological transition, affluent people in rich societies do believe in the epidemiological transition. In other words, they don't expect to die of any infectious disease other than flu. And when we die of flu, we don't expect to be told we're dying of flu. We expect to be told we died of pneumonia or of a heart attack. Mm. We know, in fact, people are dying of flu, but that's the one epidemic we haven't effectively controlled in the rich countries. And, And not just for rich people in the rich countries, but for everyone in the rich countries because these are infectious diseases, so it matters that you actually control them for everyone. And something happened that shook that. And when that happened, we then didn't have a a macro calculus that said, well, actually, you know, a couple of hundred thousand deaths, is it worth two, three, four percent of GDP? Probably not. No, we don't have that calculus. So in fact, what kicked in was, you know what, those people shouldn't die. We should do something about that. And then it centered more and more on the hospitals. So I think what's really fascinating about this is more Foucauldian story. In other words, what's really at risk are the panopticons. Or if you think about the institutions which are problematic, they are the nodes in Foucault's account of liberal modernity. So hospitals, prisons, schools, barracks, and then multiply that with commercial society, malls, and then modern transport, so railways, airports, cruise liners. And the, the, the fear both the fear and the objective risk of infection is concentrated in those institutions. So the images which trigger the action in March in the West are Bergamo hospitals, Queens in New York, the image of, as it were, modern order collapsing. Now, the epidemiologist will tell us a big story about why we need to manage this, right? But the, the, the political risk, I think, is concentrated in those kind of nodes. So it's that quite inconsistent complex, because we know, after all, that this system sacrifices, quote unquote, the lives of disadvantaged minorities every year to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people across the rich, you know, rich economies. Tens of thousands of Americans die every year because they don't have health insurance. We allowed the deaths of despair phenomenon to go on for the best part of a decade before anyone paid any attention. So nothing would be more absurd to say than our system prioritizes life. You know, that would be grotesque. But clearly it triggers in a very powerful way when shocked, like when something happens to the assumptions and distributions and the structures which are assumed to regulate the life and death process, the political economy of living and dying. When that happens, then you then you get a reaction which is not necessarily functional, may in fact not add up. I'm, I'm not convinced that sacrificing the education of a billion and a half children and young people 
especially in the developing world, is a reasonable trade-off. Um, but we didn't have a calculus for arbitrating that, right? <laughs> so, so um, it's it's uh, it's it's a true crisis. Yeah. So if you say citizens did a lot of things right, government did a lot of things right, maybe in this moment um, of crisis, we talked a bit before about the crisis that you wrote a lot about sort of in, in your major book, uh, Crashed, um, mm -hmm. the 2008 financial crisis, and the lessons learned from that moment, so for the things that went wrong in that moment, and sort of also building on the injustice that was created by those wrong decisions. Um, I wonder how you see both the relation between 2008 and 2020, so those crises in an economic or governmental way, and how, how what you could learn, and, and if you're mm. in the same way optimistic about sort of the measures taken to get out of the crisis that, that would prevent such a massive uh, redistribution from, from below to the top, like in 2008 and the following years since, since then. Well, that definitely hasn't happened, right? So 2020 is an inequality story. It's an inequality-enhancing shock. Everything about it enhances inequality in a way even more radical than 2008. I mean, the you know, the there's the QE story about 2008 and the aftermath. And then there's, of course, notably in the United States, the story of, as it were, ethnic minorities, racial minorities, and the loss of wealth that accompanied that. This is much more brutal than that. Um, so 2020 is infinitely more brutal, A, in terms of mortality, and B, in terms of the labor market. What happened in the US this year is just completely mind-blowing. Um, you know, the national average earning surged. <laughs> Why? Because so many people at the bottom end of the labor market were losing their jobs. I mean, really, it, there's, there's never been anything quite like it in that respect. And in response to that, um, both the Europeans and the Americans, and in fact, across the world to a remarkable extent, let's just take Brazil, the United States and Europe, all three of them innovated their welfare state structures in a, in a remarkable way um, and threw a lot of money behind that, uh, you know, very significant shares of GDP. In the Brazilian case, their, their deficit's going to blow up above, I think, 12% of GDP. So they're in an advanced economy mode. They're, they're handing out that, the Borsa, whatever it's called, to Brazilians of all social classes. Um, Bolsonaro actually kind of discovered fiscal populism um, or was handed it by the Brazilian Congress, my Brazilian friends tell me. So, but in the US as well, I mean, you know, in a sort of fit of panic, US Congress passed legislation that created for the first time in American history what looks like an affluent country's welfare state. I mean, they actually paid very poor people earning very substandard wages, more money than they could earn when they were working. So disposable income went up. Uh, and in Europe, we've seen the extraordinary experiment with short-time working, which is a massive innovation and huge addition to the European toolkit. The Germans pioneered it, but now everyone's doing it, even the Brits. So those are all remarkable things, but they don't alter the fact that folks like me have gone on doing our jobs and it hasn't affected us in any way. But if you're in the tourism and travel sector, as my wife is, for instance, her business has stopped and everyone she knows that she's working with across the world has lost their jobs. And in places like Cambodia, they are actually struggling to feed their families. Um, so, you know, there's a huge inequality shock there. And then when you compound that with the usual monetary interventions, then, of course, you've really got an engine for huge inequality. I think in terms of the comparison of 2020 and 2008, the lesson that we've learned has been driven home again is that the monetary side of this 
and this is sort of the flip side of what the MMT people are trying to tell us, is the monetary side is the easy bit. It's actually sort of trivially easy. I mean, all you really need to have to say is we are a central bank and we're going to do what central banks do, which is provide infinite liquidity because we can, because money is a figment of the legal and political imagination. And so, and I don't mean that trivially, it's like language or law or something like that. So there's really no scarcity of it. So if we need more of it right now, we can make more of it. And that by itself solves the panic problem, which we had in March. I mean, the US Treasury market shock in March uh, is is really very spooky. Um, and the sell-off in the equities and so on, which was going on worldwide. So so I think what that's what we've learned, right, is that in a, in a sense, the, again, that as it were, um, the inequality problems are biding and getting, in a sense, worse and exacerbated. There are things we can do about it, but they require, as it were, political leaps of imagination, which come and go. And the easy lever to pull every single time is the monetary policy lever. And it's it's now you know, proven to be almost trivially easy to do. Um, you could do an order of magnitude more QE than they did in 2008, literally at the flip of a switch. And it works. It works, but it only works in the limited sense that, as it were, it stabilizes panic and it revives financial markets, unsurprisingly, because it's basically just arbitraging between different types of financial asset. Unemployed dudes in basements on Robin Hood can do that, right? Um, But you can't, I mean, the, the problem, the real economy problem remains. So we, you know, we've been waiting for the vaccine and everything still continues, I think, basically to depend on that. But I have a couple of questions, just uh, thinking about um, just a, a minute longer, the um, comparison between 2008 and, mm. and now. Because, I mean, what didn't happen this time is that people were worrying about austerity or... Uh, not yet. Not yet. So, exactly. Oh, come on. I know. So that's my <laughs> second question. Think about the timeline. No, no, no. And so that's my second. Because, I mean, the fiscal stimulus, when you talk about monitor, but the fiscal yeah. stimulus has been massive and nobody mentioned yes. it. It's just like governments uh, throwing, uh, blowing up their debts. So, but, so the question, of course, then is what comes oh, yeah. after? And will there be a return to austerity? And, or is this actually something, a change where um, because this shock was so big, governments will, um, will, will think that this, there's just no way we can do this in 10 years, save back the money in 10 years. We need to think differently about mm. this. So what oh, do we you don't think? know yet, but no, I mean, the, crucial thing to, the crucial thing to do is to emphasize the timeline, right? Yes. And 2020 has been such a weird year that we yes. kind of, we lose perspective a little bit. So if yes. you benchmark this against 2008, right, we're still in 2008. Like, yes. you know, so um, at the very most, if you eased it forward a bit, like, you know, we, we'd be in like the spring of 2009. And, and as we know, as Paul Krugman put it, so, you know, simply and eloquently, it all went wrong in 2010. It doesn't yes. all go wrong. Well, of course, between Gail so and I, like in, in Germany, yes. in, in Germany, it did shift in 2009 because they passed mm. the debt break that summer. And in Germany, they've already started talking about debt consolidation from the very top. Angela Merkel, only a week or so ago, began to mention this issue. And we know Jens Weidmann has never stopped banging the drum for that. And the German interpretation, I did an event with the German ambassador in the United States, uh, Emily Harbour, last week. And she could not, I mean, she wanted to stop our conversation and speak to the microphone and the camera and say, just so everyone understands what we did this summer, so there are no misunderstandings, 
is temporary and a response <laughs> only to this crisis. Just so that we're clear about this. Now I can go back to talking to Wild Bantus because he mm. thinks this is all permanent. Like, it, it, um, it couldn't be clearer that they do, in fact, envision consolidation down the line. And the EU is a battlefield politically. That's the best way to think of it always. And that battle needs to be fought. And it will depend on what political forces are arrayed on each side and how the markets react and the ECB holds the ring. And so that's the it's the familiar triangle. In the US, the GOP has already flipped. I mean, the GOP literally flipped on election night, um, or maybe even slightly before. Like, you know, they've, they've been holding out on the stimulus. So, no, I expect this to be a war. But I take your point about the force of the factual. And that, for me, is the best hope. In other words, um, especially in the EU, especially with regard to Italy, the debt to GDP ratio is just too high. Mm. And... With regard, you know, so again, one shouldn't underestimate the ability of EU bureaucrats in the ESM, like Regling and people like that, to come up with fantastical debt diagrams by which countries achieve their notion of sustainability 50 years hence, which is what they do for Greece, right? They have a plan that gets Greece down to 70 or 80% of GDP, but it does stretch out to 2060 or something. But so they might do this for Italy, but it's unreal. But isn't the difference also coming from uh, Sweden, a very fiscally mm -hmm. conservative, however social democratic uh, country. I mean, I think the difference this time when I listen to the political discussions uh, in my country is that we were also affected. I mean, in, during the um, financial crisis, we just felt like, you know, uh, or the debate was very much like, like in Germany, that we didn't cause this. We have nothing to do with mm -hmm. this. We don't want to pay for it. You figure mm -hmm. it out. But this mm -hmm. time, I mean, we also handed out massive, a massive fiscal stimulus mm -hmm. and massive unemployment. And so mm -hmm. we also had to deal with it in our own uh, space. So I wonder if that might be uh, I mean, I, I a different that... dynamic to the story or to the, to the, to the 10 years ahead. For, for sure. I think the lack of the moral hazard aspect has been yeah. crucial. And again, talking to the Germans, this is what they'll tell you. This is different. Different, different, not the same. But the problem is that the two things then overlap, right? And, and the July compromise in the EU just didn't deal with the legacy issues, didn't touch them, refused to touch them, doesn't even address the fact that the vast majority of stimulus spending now is being done on national budgets, not by way of the EU recovery fund and next gen EU. So the answer remains the ECB, um, which is totally normal and totally fine. And if everyone can agree just not to talk about it and not to politicize it, that is the solution. And, you know, if on the one hand, a bunch of people say that we ought to be cancelling the debts on the books of the ECB, as Italian populists are already beginning to do, or on the other hand, we have a kind of Hans Werner Sinn faction that thinks that some sort of atomic bomb waiting to go off in the balance sheet of the ECB, both those things, you know, um, are very dangerous, which is why that May moment with the German Supreme Court was so was so yeah. striking. Yeah. Um, but I... I and the other the other thing to reckon with is the argument which will has already been made um, was then sort of considered distasteful, but I think will immediately come back once the crisis is over, which is you know what if we were so well prepared for this crisis because we did debt break before the crisis, and so the best thing for everyone in the world will be to be like us to have lots of fiscal room. And, the, and the, in the advanced economies, I think that's largely cynical. In the emerging market economies, it's actually kind of a more serious argument because they actually have to, if you like, bargain with powerful financial markets, which can overpower them. And there's certainly a way, and they don't have much of a safety net. Um, and there, I think it's, it's quite possible to make the case tactically 
that being a Peru, for instance, puts you in a position, better position than being in Ecuador. So Ecuador is already at the point of going over the edge and compounds a crisis by a default. Whereas Peru literally issued a century bond last week for 3% interest rate, a 3% yield on 100 years of borrowing from Peru. I mean, that's phenomenal. Right? And they're able to do that because their existing debt to GDP level is not that high. Yeah. So they take advantage of the copper boom when it came, paid down debt. And there is a real tactical logic. I'm not saying it's ideal that it doesn't have costs. Of course it does. But if you're in a position of inferiority within this global system, wired as it is, you know, why not play the game um, that way? Me being the German in the room, I won't uh, <laughs> contest your uh, assessment. I just want to introduce the um, German element of irrationality, which is part of the austerity. Irrational. Irrationality, Irrationality, so, which okay. is part of the austerity myth as well. But so in, in, a, in a grander sense, and coming from a country that might eventually nominate somebody from BlackRock as a chancellor candidate for the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, I mean, per se, a fun, fun fact of 2021 mm -hmm. to come. Anyway, so, so I would like to stick a little bit with this 2008 Instead of your entire government in the American case, right? So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. True. That, 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 that is we'll, actually. We'll come back to that. No, that now. Okay, now. It's now now okay. is the time okay. because I think it's fascinating that we're like stuck in this year in a, in, a, in a way that time has been eliminated. It feels like is it March? Is it September? You don't know where you are. And historical sense as well. So we don't know. Is it really the third um, term of Obama? So is that really mm -hmm. true? Is that? Oh yeah, I, I guess it's true. Or is it? Is it still as the you say term. the fourth <laughs> term? And it actually is the third term of Obama. So uh, yeah. because it is, and it's as you point out, it's a, it's a strikingly similar situation. So he came into office inheriting this mess. Biden, mm -hmm. uh, the reinvention of or creation of Obama in some way, or we can argue about that. But he's coming back with some of the same truths, some of the same people, some of the same rationality in inheriting a mess. So he might, why wouldn't he just do the same things? I mean, you, had, you both had a very optimistic take on the welfare state being suddenly magically um, in, invented or reinvented. Oh, and that what? might... <laughs> what? <laughs> no. no, no, no. Anyway. So, no. It's more like, that was... oh, no, oh, no, we don't want to see that. Oh, no, look, okay. oh, no we don't want to see that. Okay, okay. No, it was just, uh, just an aside. But um, but what happens? But who but who is who is yeah who is BlackRock Biden? What what happens now with this with the mess they inherited? Will he sort of do anything with it? And also at the same time, the re return we talked about that as well, Karen. The return of Obama as somehow a figure that must sort of make you turn over in your non-existing grave somehow. Like he's like all of a sudden a non-political hero of of something that's beyond the facts of what he what he did in economic terms in in those two years. He wrote about it in his his memoir. So it's it's a weird moment in history that that this is kind of rectified Obama, but and, and doubly rectified by his. No, biography. it's this idea of uh, coming back to normalcy. But there, but there was what, no. Yeah. What was the norm? What's the normalcy? Yeah, where did the normalcy what, lead what, you? Like yeah. I mean, Trump came out of normalcy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Palin was part of that normalcy. Yeah. yeah. Like no, I mean, I, I all of those categories seem to me they have to be understood as you know internal to the conversation amongst American liberals of some kind. Mm. And I have to say, it's really come home to me hard. I mean, I teach a lot of very left-wing Americans graduate students, and I hadn't really quite ever understood their distaste for New York Times style liberalism until I actually witnessed the spectacle of this fall, because I realised I'd never been here during a transition that went from. 
a you know a republican to a democratic administration and i just i i, I didn't understand in the you know because i'd seen these transitions in because europe during so trump everybody was kind of on the same side but now yes exactly yeah. and 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 well, not entirely i mean my my truly my truly left-wing Hardcore. friends yeah. actually refused those terms yeah um because Trump, after all, did reveal rather interesting things about the power of, you know, not the deep state is such a, a, a polemical term, but it's clear that there is a liberal establishment in the United States and it was deeply entrenched in the entire apparatus of the American state. And uh, that makes a difference. Mercifully, like, you know, I don't have any problem owning that. I'm profoundly grateful for it. And kind of growing up in the Federal Republic of Germany, nor am I embarrassed about the fact that certain sorts of democratic norms have to be owned their value decisions, and then you, they have to be defended. You know, you need a concept of a democracy that can defend itself. Wehrhafte Demokratie is not, I think, a bad concept per se. Um, anyway, yes, I do think we are in some sort of strange loop. It has been shocking to me the extent to which the Biden people just simply think they can take up yes. where the record stopped. Yeah. You know, we skipped a track and then we're back. And I mean, the the term American leadership is the one that, as it were, the, the, the idea, as it were, that on issue after issue um, is really, is truly, is truly but staggering. But isn't that also, um, because, I, can I just jump in here? Because I just, uh, I just read the Obama um, memoir and I just, oh, wow. I've, I've just been living through these years and, and this mm. book was... I think it was very revealing in a way. And then I went back to the financial crisis and uh, I went back, back to your book, uh, Adam. And it's just striking to remember the, the massive, how massive the consequences of the shock were and how inadequate the political response was. And now mm. also how much it contributed to the loss of faith then in the liberal world order and the rise of authoritarian. I mean, and this... And but, uh, we just never talk I'd... about it. There's just it's just not part of the story. It's all cultural. It's all I don't know about values. Mm. It's nothing. There's nothing material almost in the discussion. And yeah, I, 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 I think, I think it's really in. worth <laughs> saying though, in defense, um, in defense of the Biden transition team, which is all we've seen so far. Right? It consists of many different levels. Janet, Janet and, Yellen is great. And, it, you know, it's a very complex kind of group. And it's clear that large numbers of them fully, fully understand the, let's put it, I mean, it's harsh, but the failure of the Obama administration to take advantage of the crisis of mm. 2009-10. Uh, completely. I mean, after all, crashed is not, you know... It, is not in that sense a work of original scholarship. It's based on the narratives produced by the veterans of that moment and their analysis and self-critical analysis of it. Um, And the folks, I can vouch for the fact that the folks, many of the people in the transition team are completely comprehending of that narrative. And everything is organised around that. The problem, of course, objectively, is that their political situation is much, much weaker than that of Obama because Obama had... You know, it was very slim, but he nevertheless had working majorities in both houses of Congress, mm. and that's not their position at all. And clearly, the you know, as bad as Palin and the Tea Party were, the QAnon wing of the Republican Party now is in a different league. I mean, it is, you know, 
it's a whole other level of uh, dysfunction that we're seeing on the right wing of American politics and the way in which the transition has been handled tactically by the GOP. The fact that we even need to say that, right, itself constitutes an extraordinary shift. And the courts are now packed with Republicans, essentially, at all levels. So if they go the route that the Obama administration went after they lost their control of the Congress, they're going to face dogged opposition at all levels of the American judiciary. Uh, so notably on things like environmental policy, they're going to run into, run into a brick wall because it was it was the American courts that handed them the opportunity mm. to use the EPA to do climate policy, and they're most likely going to lose that anyway. So I think in fairness to the Biden people, if they get to do an Obama rerun, they'll all of them feel incredibly fortunate. And it isn't because that's all they know. There is an element which is, as it were, regurgitative and they can't help themselves. But when they start talking concretely about the tactics uh, of next year, they're very smart. They've read that they, they know they know exactly what they're up against. And, and yes, they understand mm. the problem. They just may not be much they can do. So I think, in fact, at this moment, you know, that's another reason that people are clinging to Obama, because really that would be the best but we can hope for, and that's not promising. But can we talk about the problem? Because I think it's interesting to identify what the problem is. And, and mm -hmm. um, the question is, is the economy the problem or is um, ecology the problem? So is, is it a focus on something that is rebuilding panically a machine that is wrecking our future? Or, or, or is, isn't that, wouldn't that be the moment now to really sh shift? course or is it is, is there an alternative to shifting course even um given the facts of um climate crisis i would like to sort of understand a little bit also what you're thinking about about uh, is in in your book at the moment you write about the climate history of the climate crisis of and how, how how you see how you see the, the relationship between economic somehow constraints or economic automatism and uh, mm. ability to shift course I, i can see that the realities aren't Just on the ground like that with for Biden, and in Germany would be different. But but is there even a, a, a thinking space for that? And and that has to do with the, with the definition of the problem. And that I find so worrying that 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 you limit yourself. A lot of people limit themselves immediately to to defining the problem as something very rather short term, and that it has brought us into that crisis. So well. so. Uh, On the American point still, I think it's, you know, it, it's worth saying that that it's not in the choice between culture and the economy or social forces is really is unhelpfully abstract, right? In the sense that that concrete, the problem in the United States is a combination of those two factors with the very peculiar political institutions of the American Republic as they were created in the 18th century and have been continuously modified or not modified since, right? I mean, the, the bottom line remains that a majority of Americans voted for Biden. In fact, Republicans haven't won a majority of the popular vote in many elections now. And the overwhelming majority of, as it were, the progressive, dynamically expanding part, which dominates the future of America in the 21st century, votes for a party which, broadly speaking, is very like its European counterparts. The, the problem is that the 18th century constitutional structure provides this massive check and balance system, which 20 years from now will be grotesquely misaligned you know and the fact that south dakota has two senators and new york state has two and california has two produces this you know truly grotesque disproportions and hands as it were the possibility for a self-sustaining and self-entrenching 
value-conservative culture wars rearguard hands them the game. Like it's incredibly difficult within this political structure to make change because you have to end up compromising with increasingly dwindling minorities of people who do not represent the future of the United States or anywhere else. So anyway, so that's, I think it's worth saying, right? Between culture and and the economy, there is, as it were, the mediating structures of the American polity, which are very peculiar, idiosyncratic and have, they're totally decisive. Um, Not to mention the two-party system and anyway, so... All of that on the problem of climate, all of that then comes home to roost, right? Because the de facto constraint on any kind of international agreement on climate policy all the way back to the 1990s has been the veto exercised by conservative senators. And this goes all the way back to Kyoto. And there are two elements of that. One, which is overemphasized in my view, which is climate denialism, um, which I think somebody like Naomi Klein quite correctly reinterprets as essentially a defense of the socioeconomic status quo against the sort of interventionism that would be necessary. And the second element, vastly underestimated in the international assessments, is that the Americans always wanted Paris. In other words, they were never going to agree to a deal which didn't include China because they saw China coming. And they understood, they didn't anticipate quite how rapidly Chinese emissions would explode, but they were not going to do a deal in 1997 that did not bind on China. Better no deal than one that didn't bind China. And to that extent, you have to say that they were profoundly realistic and they always interpreted this problem as geoeconomic. And the bargain over carbon is a bargain over a global distribution of of economic power. And they viewed China right from the very beginning as the central problem. And... Angela Merkel and the Europeans underwrote a set of deals between the Berlin COP meeting and Kyoto, which enshrines the exclusion of the big emerging markets from the carbon restrictions, which was simply never going to be accepted by the United States. And the long path to, you know, 20-year path to Paris is finally gets us to a framework which the Americans can actually work within. Um, and makes, you know, from the point of view of the current global distribution of emissions rather than the matter of climate justice, the retroactive, retrospective assessment actually is clearly essential to managing the problem going forward from here. So those are the two elements um, in, in, as it were, the climate politics debate in the United States, which still bind. And in a sense, China's outflanked the Americans now because the Biden team thought they were going to come in and do a grand bargain in which they would generously agree to sort of bind themselves for the next four years until the Republican was elected president. And the Chinese would, in exchange, agree to, you know, some commitments to neutrality. And the China, Xi just threw that up in the air on the 22nd of September and said, no, we're just going to do it. There's no bargaining here. Mm. So it's quite unclear what the Biden people really think their bargain is going to be, it would be very useful if they could bring in the big EMs and Australia and Canada, that by itself would be would be massive. But the, the constraint remains, there is no consensus in American society on this. And so to that extent, the, the realistic assessment, I think, is that it's all going to be driven by technology and economics. And that will work. Um, and the big states already in the United States for renewable energy production are all red states, it's the Dakotas, Nebraskas, the Texases, because they've got abundant sun and wind. And so it just doesn't make any sense not to use renewable energy. Um, but it has, I think that's the only binding component in the US. It's very, I think, within the timescales in which we need change to happen, the prospect of, as it were, collective conversion or the depolarization of American politics just seems 
unrealistic. So I think in the US case, it's all about those cost curves. Um, And and you could imagine various types of technical intervention by way of mortgages for the housing sector. But that, I think, is the kind of the limit, essentially, of what we can expect out of the US. So um, Guillaume mentioned in the beginning that we've been reading this book, uh, Ministry for the Future, by uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. And it's a very near future uh, climate... um, not dystopia, it's quite mm-hmm. optimistic, but realistic uh, somehow. And in, in, in the novel, it's basically what happens is that there's this big shock to the system, maybe a bit like the, the pandemic, um, in the sense that it just shakes up the whole system. And what happens is that there's this massive heat wave in India, which kills 20 million people. And then mm-hmm. this, that offsets a political reaction. But, uh, but in his view, um, uh, Eventually, it's not uh, technology that is the salvation to the climate crisis, it's economic inventions. And he, uh, he's, uh, it's such an interesting book. Uh, so what, what happens eventually is that central bankers issue this carbon coin as a reward for actions that keep oil and gas in the ground. Mm-hmm. And this carboni, which is called, begins to replace the dollar as the underpinning of the, the global economy. And of course, I mean, this sounds utopian, but I just wanted to, like, what are... Is it possible to, uh, isn't it today still the, a fact that the financial system, the economic system is driving, is incentivizing the use of carbon to a degree that it's just very uh, difficult to change directions? And what are the most efficient tools, would you think, in terms of, is it a carbon tax? Is it a price on carbon? What are the tools necessary to just ch- change the incentives uh, around? Hmm. I think most people agree it's like a triple, like you remove current subsidies to fossil fuel use. So you just simply bring them within the same regime and you conceivably even introduce various types of penalty. Then then you need um, carbon taxation. We need a minimum global carbon price um, and license to, for states to do carbon border adjustment to enforce that. But we, you know, we've seen in countries like the UK, which after all is hardly the first country you'd think of as a green leader, but the introduction of the minimum carbon price in the UK has mm. changed the way electricity is generated in that country very quickly. Um, it's not the German vision of a petty bourgeois, you know, greening from below. It's a big corporate greening, but it just cuts carbon out of your electricity production, which is what we need to do as quickly as possible. And then I think, and I'm totally on board, well, there's, there's four elements to this, aren't there? There's the third element is regulation. I think, again, the UK is doing the right thing. You need to pre-announce that basically internal combustion engine cars will be phased out, and this is the timeline. And so big markets simply say, enough with that, prepare for the transition. Um, I would favour doing things like intervening in housing mortgage systems so as to require changes to, to domestic um, insulation. We know it's a series of like, in sense, sort of almost unbelievably trivial adjustments that need to be made, but cumulative, they make a gigantic difference. And housing is a big part of that. And housing is a sector that's very heavily regulated and one in which we already intervene financially by way of subsidy systems for mortgages. Okay. And then the fourth element will be some kind of investment strategy mm. for the bits of the investment that will not be will not follow. Because if you do all of those other things, pricing, regulation, removing subsidies, the balance of private investment will shift and it will shift very rapidly because, you know, making money is a very powerful incentive for very smart people who will move a lot of money very quickly if they see the opportunity. 
Um, and we are beginning to see that across lots of different sectors already. They, in fact, may go crazy, like they've gone for Tesla, which is now valued at you know, more than all other car makers in the entire world um, in America, right? So, yeah. you know, figure. Um, but there, is going to be, there are going to be areas of investment which just simply won't happen without public subsidy. And there are going to be parts of the world which can't do with this out. So that, that will be like the, the, the four-fold, four-pronged strategy. And quite a lot of this can be done without technological evolution. But in a sense, you know, when I say, you know, count on the cost curves, it's an economist way of talking about it. I'm not offering you some gee whiz gadget. gadget. I'm just telling you that if we do enough solar panels, cost curves will take us down. They always do. Mm. Um, and, and it's a sort of a black boxy strategy. So I'm with you in a sense that I think it's institutional social framing changes, which will then induce um, technological change. Of course, I would favour a serious, like we care about it, type of public investment in energy research. The problem with that is the track record is that we went into nuclear. That's the only area we've ever actually spent huge amounts of money on, which we did in the 70s and early 80s in the West. And that I'm convinced is a technological and political dead end. Not because I'm you know, fundamentally anti-nuclear, but I just think, why would we go with such an expensive, cumbersome and potentially dangerous technology when there are seen much more promising alternatives? So... Um, that's the kind of hitch and giddy up. I'm not, I'm not, a, on the basis of the historical track record, I'm not sure why you would necessarily trust any of the Western states as drivers of technological innovation. This isn't because I love, you know, Silicon Valley. It's just, if you actually look at their track record, it's pretty mixed and it's very heavily dominated by very heavy technologies, by power considerations, by militarism in most cases. Um, so it's not obvious to me we have a good model um, it might be different in the life sciences. In any case, it needs to be much bigger. You know, we spend more on pet food nowadays than we... And America spends more on pet food currently than it does on energy research. Hmm. But how do you think hmm. the, the... How do you see, do you see a conflict then between the, this need for uh, public investment and what we talked about before, uh, return to austerity, perhaps, than after the corona yes. crisis? Yeah, no, that would be a disaster. Um, yeah. And um, in an environment in which you can borrow, literally get paid for borrowing money, it's just obscene that we should even be talking about this issue. Right? I mean, Germany will get paid to borrow money. Um, so, and, you know, if you borrowed enough, I mean, I once joked with the people in the finance ministry, they didn't get the joke, but now we actually see it. It's like, just imagine if you really borrowed a lot, the interest rate might go up and the savers would be really pleased with you. Like, <laughs> and it's like, you know, tell me how big the 100 billion euro package would need to be until the interest rate went positive. And then like, that would be good. Like, it's win-win. Yeah. Yeah, like, no if, 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 if the interest rate went into positive territory, if we got some inflation, it would actually not be a bad thing. Um, we're so deep down the other end. Yeah. So, so yes, the austerity would be Selbstverstümmelung, as the Germans call it, like so, <laughs> voluntary self-mutilation. <laughs> I'll jump in here as, as, as the German on the team and won't engage with that again. Um, I, I would like to pick up something as we somehow near slowly the end of our conversation. I would like to take it into a, a bit more imaginative ter territory or try to because you said something interesting so leap of political imagination you said i think twice in the 
in a way. So that, those are three words that I like. Um, well, two at least, leap and imagination, and then the politics as well, because that's the necessary um, way of getting it done. But but where do you see that sort of coming from? As we said, so there is Olaf Scholz, there is the BlackRock, Merz, there is Biden, um, there is sort of all in, in the West, there's a lack of, a distinct lack of political is it China? Imagination. Is it China? You said, where's technologies? So where inventions? I'm not want to be. I, I want. I set out to be optimistic. Now I sound gloomy, but <laughs> but 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 is that? I mean, there must be a leap of political imagination by somehow. So it can't be otherwise. Feel. Yeah, I mean, I do think that what happened. I mean, I got into the climate stuff because of the Green New Deal leap. Um, when a bunch of American leftists harnessed the idea of climate change to the history of the New Deal, much skeptical as I am, I've really been on the record monotonously about this, I'm quite skeptical about the historical analogy, but, but in fairness to them, that connection, as it were, sparks a conversation, it sparks a set of ideas. And even in its attenuated forms in the programme of the Biden administration, who knows what they'll be able to realise, and in Ursula van der Leyen's Green Deal, we're seeing kind of echoes of that moment. And that is an instance, I think, of political imagination, of a creative kind. And all power to them, like genuinely hats off. That's exactly the sort of move that we need. Um, so there's an example. Um, and we haven't fully seen the full working out of that yet. Uh, and I, I find that inspiring. Um, exactly, it's also combined to a societal vision in, in a way. So exactly, how, it's how deeply problematic in lots live. of different ways. Yeah. It may, you know, it may even not be the right tactical choices, and it, it and it may get in the way of realizing. But that's an instance of political imagination at work, and I have to admit, it affected me personally in a very direct way. So it would be it would be churlish not to admit the force of it. So there you go. There's an example. Um, other sorts are more conventional, but very powerful. Like, so we live under the sign of whatever it takes. You know, at some moment, Mario Draghi just simply said, enough's mm. enough. Like, this is crazy. We all understand what needs to happen here. We're going to do it. You know, and he's a conservative fundamentally, a neoliberal down to the core. So he doesn't do this just out of the blue, right? This isn't some sort of utopian. He looked at Europe's development examined his own values, thought hard about his function and historic responsibility as the key of the federal project in Europe and said those words. I think also in a moment of passion, I think he was furious at what he was seeing in London. You know, we know, you know, he was swearing and this is a very elegant, very buttoned up Italian. He doesn't do that. Like he was pissed at what he saw and he wanted to ram this down people's throats and he wanted to say, you know, here with all the power vested in me, you mess with me, I'll fuck you up. That's what he was really saying. You bet against this project, don't. Like, you know, that's a kind of political imagination too. And I admire that. That's really powerful. And it, everyone, I mean, ever since we've been echoing it, like mm. that has become the talisman of a certain sort of, it isn't imagination in the sense of, um, uh, you know, new idea. Things we hadn't thought no. of before, mm. science fiction, but it's certainly political, right? It's saying, <laughs> you guys don't get it. Right. You folks do not understand what you're dealing with here. This is the force. You know, this I'm really bringing the political down into this space. And I'm a central banker. And so I have tools you don't have. Don't mess with this. I have a certain sort of superpower. Right. And 
that's what we need. We need those are real moments, and and um, no one's forgotten it. No one ever will forget it. It's it's a talisman, and it helped this year that people were able to say that, and measure themselves against it, and say, you know, Lagarde fluffed it the first time round on March twelfth, and was desperate to make that right because she understood that she'd screwed up, mm. and. Um, not really, because I think she's an economist. Or actually, she probably doesn't think she should be managing the Italian spreads. She probably really doesn't. And the Germans tell her she shouldn't be. But knowing that she had missed her Draghi moment was really hurts. So I think those sorts of moments matter. And they're, you know, so those things happen. And that is kind of what we, what we, we, uh, to say we need it, you know, you end up sounding like somebody we don't necessarily want to invoke. But like, or a whole sort of philosophy of history that, you know, some sort of saving thing arrives at a moment of danger. I, I don't think we're in that kind of world, but I don't think we should reconcile ourselves to or simply expect there not to be moments like that because because there are. And we could have had some very bad ones. I mean, Trump, after all, was a whole series of sequence, you know, this can go in lots of different directions. The political imagination is is a, is a, is... You know, it's slippery slope. Conservative yeah, I mean, liberals no, are very no, careful no, about it. No, I think in a way, as a way, German, yeah. In a yes, way, exactly. There were, there were oh. moments like that, not the the imaginative moments, but the the buck stops here kind of moments. Also in this election, the the post election process yeah. with Republican yeah. uh, officials saying, "No, this is yeah. just yeah. back the fuck up. This is uh, yeah. or whatever the senior ge- American general saying. No, Mr. President, I have to explain exactly. something to you. Yeah. We don't take an oath to this. Yeah. We don't take an oath to that. The, the thing I take my oath to is the Constitution. Yeah. Just so we're clear. So <laughs> like, that's you know, also it's a draggy moment. <laughs> those are those are less <laughs> less creative, right? yeah. less 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 expansionary, but but necessary. So yeah. I. I, and, and, you know, we're talking at very high levels here. I mean, it also percolates down and it energizes people. And fact of the matter is more Americans voted in this election that we've just had than ever before mm. because they really, really cared on both sides. And and that's that's a remarkable thing. I mean, I've avoided talking about China because I think it's so easy as a sort of liberal, technocratically minded westerner to point there and i think we just have to guard against our own projections constantly but am i impressed of course i'm impressed Mm. like who could how could you not be impressed i really don't understand that i don't understand i totally understand those who are afraid or want to front up against it or regard it you know as a criminal enterprise or you know all of those that's but the um, but the sort of dismissive criticism, I just don't understand. That just mm. seems to me to be counterfactual and making life too easy for ourselves. I think we have to take it absolutely seriously. And Was as that a historian, the most of... important thing that happened this fall? Their stance on climate, the, the promise on decarbonisation? It's one of the most important yeah. things. I mean, we have to see what it means. Mm. Um, Are you optimistic of... about that? About the seriousness of the uh, I think, declaration? I think the way their political system works, I don't think it's necessarily easy for them to back away from from that kind of commitment and um, people who really know their response was, you know, when they say that kind of thing, they generally deliver. Um, but it's clear that they have politics too, right? This is not a monolith. This is, you know, this is not some sort of simplistic, you know, people talk about autocracies. I mean, this is absurd, right? It's a hugely complex, massive political system. And part of what she is doing is 
performative. It's urging. It's saying, look, me from here on this platform, I'm saying this. So (laughs) the conversation starts now. Um, And um, yeah, so that's that's what I take to be going on. And everyone is, you know, you have we have to track what happens in the 14th five year plan. And then what comes after that, we have to check it all the way down into the energy ministries, down to the regional level. And of course, these are entities the size of European, big European states. So, you know, what happens at that level is hugely significant. Um, So uh, optimistic. Um, I'm very impressed. And I think it's the news big. It is the big news story on sort of climate political economy. Mm. Sure. So. So uh, on that note, 10 years in 2030, what did we do right? It was um, uh, China (laughs) and uh, the election. Let's be be clear about the we here. We 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 shut down. We shut shut down. down. They made the climate move. They made the the climate move. (laughs) You guys in the US uh, elected Biden and we'll see how what plays out. And Germany will uh, elect next year a, a BlackRock. Yeah, <laughs> with a green, uh, so no. with a green uh, vassal. Uh, Perfect. Yeah. yeah. No, but reasons you know, what to could be, be better for twenty one? Reasons to be <laughs> pessimistic and some glim- glimmers of hope or glimmers of um, I don't know something. At least reasons. Yeah, no, I mean I don't. You can't tell this even this year. You can't tell this story as one of just sheer catastrophe. I mean, it, no. it hasn't worked out that way. It's been very no, it's complicated. Good. It's good that you remind us. I think. Yeah, we're still in the middle of it. We're not, yeah. uh, not at oh, the no, end. Oh, no, and we're not. We're so not done. Yeah, I mean, the dying is going to go on for... I thought Merkel was quite impressive today in the Bundestag. You know, did you see her, the 590? Yeah, yeah, no, I she mean, was very Merkel, emotional. But... Yeah, yeah. But also it was a bit uh, a bit uh, underwhelming to say, well, three days after, like, what's the learning curve? I mean, of, of, of this... I mean, I, I don't want to... You, you said we did good. I want to sort of... Yes. I just want to shut up, but but the learning curve of the, of the government seems to be quite a flatten, flatten. Like normal, like, like normal. Like everyone else's. <laughs> yeah, but you would expect after nine months, she flat out said, "I don't know about education. I don't know what's good. It's not my my my." Well, territory. it's actually true. I don't it's think we true. are. Yeah. I don't think we do know. Right? It's not at all clear. And the no, but you made the is... point. But you made the point. So it's actually quite clearly true. So it is quite clear what is true that you shouldn't. Uh, prevent school children from learning for a massive amount no. of time. So, so that is no, no, clearly no. not it's, I, 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 I agree. I think, I think the balance of evidence is that that is a poor trade-off and they should go to school. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the problem is the German school system is so very poorly set up to do this. It's not Singapore. It's not South Korea. Yes. You know, for once, uh, it, I, I would totally agree. With <laughs> <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't have, you know, it has too many copper wires and not enough, not enough uh, bandwidth. Um, and that makes it all the more important. So I didn't know we, we fundamentally disagreed about Germany. That was never really my sense about. <laughs> no, 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 no. We actually agree on most things in Germany. So, yeah. and uh, but but it's going to be it's going to be fun year twenty one really to see how interesting, um, interesting how how this uh, yeah I mean if Merz will really yeah. work with the Greens and if if he doesn't if the Greens won't work with him I mean that's going to be. Potentially, but it's I was, a massive. I was jo- joking, but it's like confusion. it's it's absolutely classical, classic, isn't it? The Green Party collaborating with BlackRock is yeah. is precisely what is actually happening. You know, I mean, um, and uh, so that kind of blend of technocratic capitalism of a very abstract variety, right? Extraordinary. BlackRock is a remarkable formation. 
Let's do a let's do a special podcast on uh, on black rock. When it happens. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. Thank you Cheers. for for your time um, and uh, see you in 21. Yes. Pleasure talking to you both. Stay well.